the reading of the word this morning comes from the Song of Songs, chapter 7, verse through chapter 8, verse 4. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Your statue is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I say, I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. O may your breasts be like clusters of the vine, and the scent of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. It goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. Come, my beloved, let us go out into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes give forth fragrance, and beside our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O my beloved. O that you were like a brother to me, who nursed at my mother's breast. If I found you outside, I would kiss you, and none would despise me. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, she who used to teach me. I would give you spiced wine to drink, the juice of my pomegranate. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I assure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and give it to, to us in love. So today, uh, like last week, we are going back to middle school age, uh, sixth through eighth grade, a place where all of us at some level began wrestling with the themes that we see here in Song of Solomon due to the world and our body and our emotions, uh, bringing us there, uh, leading us to these themes. Um, and you learn lessons uh, at that time in middle school that lodge deeply in you uh, about love, about sex, about cross-gender relationships. Um, so last week we focused on, on love uh, and, and being captivated by another, and then it leads naturally into now the consummation of love, sex in this passage, which is a part of the same conversation. So let's go back to middle school, um, elementary school. Actually, for me, uh, I was introduced to sex uh, by my friend Eric at his house, uh, where he was like, hey, come, uh, i got to show you this thing that my brother showed me on the computer. Go over there, pulls up a video. Um, I see two naked people, uh, parts flying everywhere. And I look over at him, and we're both like, ew, what is that? That is disgusting. Turn that thing off. Neither of us knew what it was. His brother showed him, um, and we had never seen anything like it. Later that year, my friend James, uh, driving in his car with his mom, um, she pulls up at a store, goes inside, and he turns around from the front seat, and he's like, do you know what sex is? His parents had just told him that morning, um, and he's like, explains it to me, gives me the mechanics of it. I remember hand gestures uh, signalizing what it was, Um, and it was actually a decent, straightforward description of the mechanics, and um, that was my first exposure to sex in the world. Um, That is how my education began, starting in elementary school. I next saw comedians joking about sex. Um, they were mentioning the secret that everybody had in public that seemed to make everybody laugh. Um, my friends and I would imitate those comedians. We thought sex was very funny. 
um, and sharing the secret out loud was, was funny. And I saw adults shudder as they heard it brought up, uh, people who would never talk about something like that out loud. Um, I also noticed uh, our principal of our elementary school was outed for an affair with his secretary. And I noticed, oh, this is something people consume in secret um, without telling others about. I remember myself, as middle school went on, feeling more and more powerfully drawn to it. A weird tingling in my body when I would see a couple moving towards intimacy in a movie, uh, a TV show. I remember thinking towards the end of middle school, if I could just figure out how to do that one day, that would be awesome. (laughs) Middle school Harrison thought a lot about sex, and and I think a lot of us do too. Last week I said 70% of all songs since 1960 are written about love. 40% of all songs since 1960 as a subcategory of love are written about sex specifically. 92% of songs in the Billboard Top 10 through the years are about sex specifically. 92%. It somehow sells almost every product in our country. Every ad uh, tries to find a way to work it in because our brains, our hormones, our bodies are drawn to it. When we see it, we naturally look at it. It's in our movies, our shows. It's in your body. We're made sexual beings. You can't escape it even if you really wanted to. It's usually our deepest, darkest secrets, things that we've seen, things that we've uh, thought about, things that we've done with others. It's got our deepest longings and our deepest shame. Sex, whether you're having it now or not, is central in your life and in our culture. The Bible talks about sex actually a decent amount um, because we we really need to hear about it from God. And that means that we as a church talk about sex and Song of Solomon here leads us there in the consummation in this relationship between two lovers that move towards marriage. And I want to ask the text three questions that middle school Harrison would have been asking at the time. Three questions. We'll put it up on the screen. First, is sex good or evil? As a middle schooler, I would have guessed it's bad, but it's something that everyone really wants to do, like eating a gallon of ice cream in one sitting. What's the purpose of sex? Um, why, seeing that video, what are these people doing? You don't do anything like that in any other part of life. Two naked people laying on each other. What is going on with it? And then lastly, excited middle school Harrison toward the end, how might I best do this, please? At some point, all of us in our lives, your bodies lead you there. How might we do this thing best? So first we're going to look at is sex good or evil? So I talked about my first education with sex. Imagine for you, if your first exposure, first conversation, first reading about sex came from the text that we're looking at today, the text I'm about to read through, elementary and middle school you encounters this. What would the message that middle school you take away from this passage? It's the first thing you ever learned about. So look with me at at uh, chapter 7, verse 6 here. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one with your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree. Palm trees were considered centrally alluring to them. Your breasts are like its clusters, like coconuts in the palm tree. I say I will climb the palm tree, lay hold of its fruit. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine, like grapes, and the scent of your breath like apples, your mouth like the best wine. He's expressing this desire, this sexual intimate desire to climb her body, touch her breasts, kiss her lips. And he says it's like the best wine. And then she responds, it goes down smoothly for my beloved. Speaking of the wine he's just referring to, gliding over lips and teeth. She notices it's a delicious drink to him that he enjoys it. He wants to enjoy it. And then she says, my, I am my beloved's. His desire is for me. 
It makes her feel good to be desired by her lover. Studies about pornography have shown that the place people look at the most is no sexual part of the body, but it's the eyes that we long to be desired by another person in that way. Come, my beloved, let us go out into the fields, lodge in the villages. Let us go out early to the vineyards, this early date uh, we're going to take. See whether the vines have budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened, and the pomegranates are in bloom. She's describing this honeymoon location that they would have of fruits all around uh, and, and, and small villages with lots of farming. And She says, there I will give you my love. The mandrakes, which is an aphrodisiac at their time, give forth fragrance. Besides our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I've laid up for you, O my beloved. She has set up all this stuff, prepared things for him. What is the message you would take away about sex? Let me pray and then we'll look at that. Father, um, this topic for us is so important, but so scary so rarely discussed in public and church often. And um, Lord, we're excited to hear about you from this. I pray that you would speak to us. Um, Lord, that we have, we have learned this very poorly, many of us, uh, from our lives in a broken, fallen world. Reteach us today what this thing is and what, what your will is for it in our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So reading this text... What would be your, your message as a middle schooler taking away? I want to suggest that one clear message here, and not just in this passage, but in all of Song of Solomon, is that sex is desirable. You feel it as you read. It's hot. It's sensual language. It draws you in. It's also something that's special. It's assumed that it's done in a remarkably beautiful setting with preparation, fruits laid up, a decorated room. It's something they intensely longed for for a long time. They fantasized about with sensual language with each other. It's something incredibly amazing and desirable to them. They describe it word for word as beautiful, pleasant, like drinking the best smooth wine. So if you only read what we just read, never heard anything else about sex, I think you would leave saying what they're talking about, this thing called sex, Sounds and feels amazing, and it's to be desired. In fact, I want to give somebody my love like they're doing in this passage. Not to mention the fact that you would find it in a book called The Song of Songs, meaning the best of songs. And it's written also in a book that's inspired by the Spirit of God himself. And I think when we come to Song of Solomon, it shows that our views that many of us Christians have of sex and of God are totally wrong. God himself here is celebrating in a song that sex is one of his best gifts that he's given to humanity. And that the sexual parts of you, your breasts in this passage, your penis, your vagina, and other passages are some of the best parts that he's made in your body. They're fearfully and wonderfully made. He loves the idea of those things existing and becoming one with another person. He came up with that idea himself. And this part of you that feels longing as you read this, that longs for this, I think God would say is worthy of unadulterated, pure celebration. And make no mistake, in Song of Solomon, God himself is inviting you into that celebration through rich imagery. So I want to suggest that God stands in the dance floor, holds his hand out to you, and say, come and dance and sing with me to this gift that I've given to humanity. I would guess that some of us in here right now are thinking, yeah, 
I can do that. Sex is great. Yeah, I'll, I'll dance to that. And many of us, others of us are like, not a chance. Not a chance. I'm good. Thank you, God. The description here in Song of Solomon is not how I experience this gift at all. It's a curse to me. It's so painful for, for me that I can't even do it with my spouse. It got me abused as a kid. There are no men and women for me to marry so I can experience this gift. I am married and we never take advantage of this gift. We've tried to have children for so long that this gift has become an overwhelming burden. I'm so addicted to this gift that has destroyed my life and my family. Or this gift was used to lure my spouse away from me and break our family to pieces. The list goes on. It would make sense that many of us would come to Song of Solomon. It would sound really weird and funny. And we would say, I'm not going to enter into that dance floor with you, God. And that means also when we turn on the radio and we hear a song that's paraphrasing scripture, saying almost the exact same things that Brett and Laurie just read for us, we say, turn that garbage off. No one should be singing about sex. Also means many of us loved the thinking of the ancient Greeks more than the thinking of the Bible. The ancient Greeks, who very much have influenced our culture, would say that the body and sex are evil, something to be beaten submission until you can be rid of it one day in heaven where you'll exist as your, tr- your true self, which is your soul, which will, de- will dwell without a body, disembodied spirit in heaven. This is where the concept of a platonic relationship came from. No physical intimacy takes away from the purity of the relationship. But if that's us, you're stopped in your tracks when you get to a book like Song of Solomon. The Bible assumes your true self is you as a body. God made your body. It was his idea. He loves your body as something to be nourished and cared for. And in the end, you won't dwell as a soul in heaven. Your body will be raised back up as something so good. And not only that, in Song of Solomon, we learn that he loves the idea of your body becoming one with another body. It was his idea. And he sings about it in the best of songs. So middle school Harrison asks the question, is sex good or evil? Song of Songs says, neither. Sex is great. It's worthy of God himself singing about with beautiful imagery, putting it in scripture, and inviting you into that song. But I'm sure many of you are thinking, this is, this is weird. I don't know if I want to do that. Why is sex so great? Why? We see in the world so much brokenness around it. Why would the Bible think it's this great? And that is connected to the purpose of sex in the Bible. What is the purpose? So I looked through the Bible and found five purposes of sex. Not to change the subject, but I'm pretty sure during COVID, we found out that aliens exist. I saw on the news. I haven't dealt with it. I haven't read the stuff. I don't know if that's true. Um, but imagine with me that you were one of the, or that not you were, you're talking to one of these aliens, which, you know, who knows they exist, but you're talking to an alien and you're trying to explain to them, they don't know, have anything in their species about like sex at all. And they're like, what is this weird thing that you guys do? And you're trying to explain to them about sex. Uh, and, and you come to them from the Bible. How, how would they respond to these things? You say, first, okay, alien, Genesis 1. God commands us, one of his first commands to humanity, be fruitful and multiply. Sex is a way of making more people. And God says, do it, make, make more people. Not only that, 
the, the language in Genesis would say, make more images of God that God considers very good. Sex is a gift to make more people. And the alien would be like, wow, you can, you can make more people? Like, yeah. It takes a couple minutes to start the whole process. Some people do it whenever they want. And the person nine months later shows up. That's crazy. That's, ama- that's an amazing gift, yeah. And you'd be like, well, alien, there's, there's more. Okay, there's more, actually. Let's look at the second one, Genesis 2, another command from God. One of, the, one of the, the first commands, again, you shall leave your father and mother, shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. God looks at Adam, he says, it's not good that you're alone. Actually, I'm going to make another person for you, and also, you're going to become one with that person. So the alien's like, wait a second, you can two people become one person? You're like, yeah, it's mysterious. Our two bodies fit together, kind of like a puzzle piece. And, and somehow, God says, we become one person, you stay together for life. It's crazy. You make two people make one person, and you're telling me also in the same act, you can make another person and become one with a person all at the same time? Yeah. Yeah, you can. It's like, wow, that's an amazing thing. Um, yeah, that's, that should be enough to just celebrate it. Well, actually, no, we got more stuff here. We've got more stuff. Um, so he's like, okay, to do those two things, you would think it would be some surgical some dark, painful surgical procedure to make one person out of two, right? You're stitching together people, and you're like, well, actually, here in Song of Solomon, one of the purposes of it is pretty clearly intense pleasure. Um, You know, not everybody uh, experiences the same level of pleasure with it. Some people go through pain, but um, when done rightly, uh, sex can be like what Song of Solomon here is saying, as beautiful, as pleasant, like the best smooth wine going down. In fact, um, under certain circumstances, it can be the best you've ever felt in your entire life. And aliens like, so you can make another person, become one with another person, and all in that same moment, you feel the best you may have ever felt in your whole life? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, that's it. Oh, wow, well, that's, that's great. All right, surely, that's, that's it, right? That's probably all the Bible needs to say about it for us to celebrate. And he says, well, actually, in Song of Solomon, talks a lot about this thing called, called love between people. We talked about last week, two people being captivated by one another, by one another, imaging um, God's love for us. And, uh, and actually here it says, she says, uh, I will give you my love. Um, that sex is an act of consummating true love between people. It's a um, physical act that makes official, expresses, experiences, and grows something that's happening on a spiritual, emotional plane. It's a consummating True love between people, one of the most beautiful things we have, it consummates it. It's like, wow, okay, that's, that's a lot. Uh, all, all at the same time, consummating true love, you become one with that person, make another person, feel great while doing it. And oh yeah, one, one other small tack on. By the way, the New Testament would say it points us to the thing that we all need and want the most of anything in life, which is spiritual oneness with Christ. Major doctrine in the New Testament is that a Christians, uh, when, they, when you become a Christian, you, you enter into something called union with Christ. Your life, your body, your soul mysteriously, spiritually becomes so entangled with Jesus that your sinful record is put on him. What is true of him becomes true of you. His record becomes yours. His life becomes your life. When God sees you, he sees Jesus. The old you is considered dead. The new you is Christ living in you. You become one with the God-man himself, the best thing that could ever happen to us. 
And that's how we're saved, actually, is our union with Christ is what saves us from our sin. And then Paul goes and says in Ephesians 5, I tell you, it's a mystery, but the two becoming one flesh, it refers to Christ and the church. He's talking about marriage there, but also two becoming one flesh, referring to sex. And then in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, well, you don't become one flesh with Jesus, but when you're joined to him, you become one spirit with him. And the implication of what Paul's saying is that in the New Testament, this act of sex that God made is something that points us as people to our spiritual union with Christ. It's an intimate, joyful joining of us with God, with the God-man himself that leads to new life. Does that sound familiar? Intimate, joyful joining of us with the God-man himself that leads to new life. And that means sex can be worshipful for us. It also means that we could say Jesus didn't like marriage or sex or anything because he didn't do those things while he, was, while he was on earth. But actually, with all of us individually, Jesus experiences the real thing that those things point to with each and every one of us. And he will do so fully when we see him in person in heaven. So mysteriously, sex points us to our oneness with Jesus himself. So I think if you told an alien those things, and he'd be like, dang, like, you should write a song about that. <laughs> and you'd be like, well, alien, we do actually, 40%. And 92% of the songs that pretty much everybody likes are about this. Uh, I'd be like, that makes sense. I, th- I think this is why in Song of Solomon you see an unadulterated, pure celebration of sex without shame. It's because the Bible views sex like this. The celebration of it. But the thing is, as Christians, uh, number one, we should be the biggest celebrators of sex ever. We should be able to enter into this with God. We should be the biggest proponents of good sex in the world. And we'll talk about how to do that in a little bit. But also, we also know something the alien doesn't know, which is that a, a gift that God's given us that's this good as powerful and full-orbed and with such potential as sex, that Satan's strategy would be to desecrate it, destroy it, twist it, mar it as much as he possibly can to the point to where your living reality of this thing is so different from that that you can't even look at the ideal. can't even look at it. can't accept it. What does this have to do with me? I won't write a song about an alien, and I won't join you on the dance floor, God. And it makes sense that we would feel that way with how much Satan has twisted this thing in our world. That leads us to the question, in a fallen, broken world, far from this ideal, how should we engage in sex? Or in the, the words of middle school Harrison, how might I best do this, please? Look at verse 1 of chapter 8. Oh, that you were like a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breasts. If I found you outside, I would kiss you, and none would despise me. She's longing to be able to kiss him, and in their culture, if it was a brother, you could have kissed somebody on the cheek, and nobody would have thought much about it. She's saying, if I was just like your brother, I could then do that with you. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, a sensual place of intimacy for her. She who used to teach me, I would give you spiced wine to drink the juice of my pomegranate, a sexual image of him tasting her. Her saying, I would love to do that with you. If you were like my brother, I could bring you into my mom's house. We could sneak that in. But then she says, his left hand is under my head. His right hand embraces me. And this is repeated in Song of Solomon, this moment 
of them thinking about this moment of leading to consummation. And then, at the end of this unadulterated, pure celebration of this powerful, pleasurable, sweet consummation, she shifts. She says, I adjure you, I beg you earnestly, plead with you, do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Do not, under any circumstances, do this thing outside of the proper time, which in Song of Solomon is marriage. How do you best do this? She says, wait until it's time. And this warning, it's repeated in Song of Solomon, I think is one of the most disobeyed warnings of any biblical warning in the church and outside the church. And it's due to something called the sexual revolution. Starting in the 1960s with the invention of birth control, which is a good technology, not, not necessarily good or evil in and of itself, uh, but something that made possible the splitting of having sex and having kids for both men and women. That technology made possible the, the line of thought that many people began to have, which is what if we threw off traditional Christian um, marriage uh, and instead, uh, we just uh, mainly use sex for pleasure. Um, can you put up the five, the five purposes up there? Um, go back one. Yeah. So let's say, so they were like, what if we took out making a person, took out becoming one with another person, took out consummating true love and oneness of Christ, and what if we just focused on the pleasure part of it? What if, what if that's what we did? This new way promised more sex, better sex, all, with all kinds of people, making it just a biological act with little ramifications. This movement helped pornography become mainstream. Um, it, it, it created the idea of a cohabitation, two people living together, having sex, but with no commitment. Uh, scenes in movies and shows became more graphic as a result of this. Any rules or shame around sex were thrown out. It coincided with the rise of expressive individualism, a uh, belief system that says life is not about us, it's more about me, me trying to find myself, being fulfilled, expressing what I feel. The sexual revolution just takes that and puts it in the sexual sphere. The sex is about you finding your fulfillment, your pleasure that you need with the technology to make it possible. The revolution tried to answer the question, how might we best do this, please? But without wisdom from the past or from God. And the question that I want to ask today is, did it deliver? Did it deliver? A guy named David Spiegelhalter did a massive statistical study on modern-day sex to try and bring out the secrets of our lives and, and bring them into the light. And one very surprising thing he found is that since 1960s, there's such a rapid decline of sex that by 2040, no one will be having any sex in our culture. There's such a rapid decline of sex that by 2040, no one will be having any sex. 18 years from now. Even with stuff like Tinder, we're having way less sex than 50 or 100 years ago. Why? What they found was with the sexual revolution, a person might have a little more sex at the beginning of their life, but way less sex over the whole course of their life without a committed, stable relationship. Of the 45 to 64-year-old age group, a fourth, 25% uh, more people are living alone now than they were back then as a result of breakups from cohabitations, people living together without a commitment. 
People now belong to fewer organizations, meet with friends less frequently, socialize less often, less often as a result of expressive individualism. And as you would expect, there's much higher levels of loneliness, mental health issues, and much lower levels of sex than those who are traditionally married. So regular sex, ironically, is a casualty of the sexual revolution. Well, you might be thinking, surely they're singles, though. They're living it up. Random sex with strangers, right? That's the dream. Couldn't it be worth it? Again, the finding was no, that confidence in sex has gone way down over the years. Because what did you expect? Watching hyper-unrealistic pornography daily and then trying to sleep with a stranger you know nothing about. Don't know their likes, their dislikes, their sexual traumas, communication style, physical issues, fantasies. You thought that was a recipe for success in bed? Any married couple will tell you that honeymoon sex is the worst sex they've ever had. And that learning each other improves sex. The sexual revolution didn't know that. So you don't have to learn anybody. Good, frequent sex is the casualty, but it's not the worst casualty, in my opinion. What they also found that kids were another casualty, poor kids specifically. The marriage rate stayed the same among rich people, but collapsed in the poorest communities. And now poor kids are not just facing poverty, but life with one parent. Look at this, look at the numbers of this slide. What they found is 25% of couples with traditional marriage who got married before having kids split up in less than 10 years. 50% of couples who had kids first then got married split up in 10 years. 66% of couples who had kids but only cohabitated rather than getting married split up in less than 10 years. What that means is that half, half of our kids born today will be living with one parent by the time they're 16. And 80% of those are due to cohabitations, the brilliant idea of the sexual revolution. Summary is that cohabitations are really bad for kids. But you might be thinking, but the second parent, the one who left, they're still around, right? Look at, look at these other stats. The parents who split off from the family, 27% never visit their kids again. 21% only visit several times a year, and 31% call or email less than once a month. And what that means is 79% of those kids have virtually one parent. And you might be thinking, well, does it really matter just to have one parent? Turns out kids with only one parent in the household have triple the rate of mental health issues than those with two parents. I've given you a lot of data with this. But what I'm trying to, the point I'm trying to make is the sexual revolution's idea of sex um, has made sex worse, our relationships worse, our loneliness worse, and totally ruined half of our kids' lives. In the midst of that, there is an ancient woman crying out in Song of Solomon, I beg you, do not do this until the time is right, until love is consummated in marriage. Until it pleases, wait. The Bible cries out, sex is not just a biological act. It's how we join two people together into one. How we make a new person, how we consummate true love. It's how we feel the best we've ever felt when done right. It's an image of us joining with God himself. And marriage protects those things. 
It makes sex one of the best of gifts, one of our best songs, and fully and shamelessly does so. But in the sexual revolution, sex becomes a biological, help, a biological act that helps you feel pretty good for an average of five and a half minutes awkwardly with a stranger when you're young and something you only wish you had as you sit alone in your house when you're older. What a loss. What a loss. So how might I best do it, please? Song of Solomon says, wait for marriage. It's the main warning of the text that I think our world desperately needs. And for those of us who are married, Song of Solomon gives you a beautiful blueprint, an ideal to work, work to from the depths of where you are. We've all been marred and hurt by the sexual revolution. We struggle in this area, the brokenness of the world, brokenness in our bodies. Song of Solomon says that sex rests on a bed of, of a deep emotional bond. What we talked about last week, committed love between two people that's cultivated over time. The act itself, there's preparation for it. Beautifying the room, there's build up with talk and praising of one another's bodies and persons. There's play here, there's fun. There's romantic dates and vineyards. There's curiosity, pleasure and joy in the foreplay, not just in the penetration or the orgasm. There's a lot of communication about what each person is feeling. There's serving the other. There's delighting in the other's pleasure in you. If you're married, this is what we work towards with patience, this passage. Because our world and our bodies are broken and fallen. The reality is at each stage of our lives in marriage, there are physical issues that are going to prevent you from a Hollywood or pornographic depiction of sex. There's trauma from the past from both people. There's pain in sex during the first years of marriage. There's pregnancy issues. There's recovery issues from childbirth. There's erectile dysfunction, menopause, sicknesses, old age. It never stops. Good, true sexual intimacy happens in the midst of those issues, throwing out all the ridiculous expectations we've seen in movies like simultaneous orgasms every time, trying every position. Even penetration can be too high of an expectation for sex in various points in our lives. But good sexual intimacy, like we see in Song of Solomon, begins with two married people romantically lying in bed and just having fun together and seeing where it goes. That creates the safety that we need to enter the joy God has here in Song of Solomon. Let me conclude with this. God stands out and invites you to his dance floor. Sing and dance this gift that he's given you. Whether you're having sex right now or not. Because for those of us in Christ, in heaven one day soon, your sexual trauma will be gone. Your sexual sins, totally paid for, drowned in the depths of the sea. There won't be any human marriage or sex up there anymore. And you won't miss it. Because you will encounter the real thing it's been pointing to all along. A mysterious, intimate, deep oneness with Jesus himself in person. And it's there that your deepest longings will fully and finally be fulfilled. So whether you're having sex or not in this life, it's, that's what we're longing for in our deepest sexual places. So come soon, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we praise you, for, praise you for this gift. We confess, Lord, that we have thrown your gift in the trash as a culture, personally, emotionally for many of us. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to open our eyes in the Song of Solomon as we finish this week and next week to the beauty of this thing that you've given us. 
and also to healing uh, that you can lead us into. And Lord, even in the best moments of our sex lives, Lord, that we would feel pointed to you and to this oneness that you're going to call us into one day, finally, where we get to experience all those things coming true. We look forward to that day, Jesus. Come soon. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.